Friends, we're in Genesis chapter 4. We've got two more weeks in this series of Genesis 1 through 4. And today we're going to read the story of Cain and Abel. And then later this week, my little brother is going to visit me from Pennsylvania. So I don't know what the Lord's been trying to teach me this week in preparation for that, but, but may he do his will. So here we go. Genesis chapter 4 and beginning in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord God said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hands. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from the face, your face, I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray together. Father, speak to us this morning. Take an old, old story from the beginning of time. Breathe by the power of your Holy Spirit through these inspired words to teach us, to shape us, to draw us ever closer into Christ, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, Jesus, when he was preaching to the crowds, made a very punchy point. There were people in the crowds who were believing in him, those who were resisting him. And in Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says to the crowd this, and I want to test you this morning and see if we can finish Jesus's sentence, because he said, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. He who's not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, what is Jesus saying? What's his point? Why does he say something like that? Basically, he's telling us that the world is divided into two groups of people. There are the with Jesus on the one side, and there are the against Jesus on the other side. Now, that's a very striking point because he's basically saying there are no other groups. There's there's not the group that's indifferent to Jesus. 
There's not the group that's undecided about Jesus. There's not the group that would say, gee, I haven't thought about Jesus for years. There is no middle way. There is no third option. According to Jesus, we are either with him, for him, worshiping him, gathering with him, or we are against him, disobeying him, resisting him, scattering what he seeks to gather. Now that puts a fine point on things, doesn't it? Those are not my words, those are Jesus' words. That puts a fine point on what he's calling humanity to to, and why he divides us into two groups. And we're going to hear from our passage today that that wasn't new with Jesus, the for or against the Lord. That was happening from the beginning of time since our forefathers. We began to divide ourselves as human beings into two groups. Those are for God and those who are against God. As we look at Genesis chapter 4, I want you to see there are incredible similarities between chapter 4 and chapter 3. So we're going to see some of these, and I want to, to say to you that I think this is on purpose. I think the author means to show us something by lining these two chapters up and making them so similar with each other. I count, with the help of others, seven similarities between Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4. You're not going to be quizzed on these seven, but I want you to stand back and say, wow, I think the author really intends to do this. So number one, you have that important Hebrew word new in both chapters. Adam and Eve knew that they were naked in chapter 3. Now they knew each other in chapter 4 in marital intimacy. Number two, verse seven, we'll come back to this. God tells Cain, sin's desire is for him, but he must master it. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what God told Eve about her marriage. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Number three, when Cain murdered Abel, God asked, where is Abel? When Adam and Eve sinned, God asked, where are you? Number four, when Cain demurs, God asks, what have you done? And when Adam and Eve did the same, he asks, what is this that you have done? Chapters three and four, God curses. Chapters three and four, God drives humanity away from his presence. Chapters three and four, man moves further east of Eden away from the presence of the Lord. Now, I'll admit, if there were one or two of those similarities, it might be like, gee, that's interesting, but not interpretively relevant for us. But seven repetitions is screaming for our attention. The repetitions are there for the Lord to say, pay attention. I'm telling you this again and again and again. These chapters are related. You ever have the Lord do that for you, that what you don't get the first time or the fifth time, he'll repeat again and again? We had a sweet couple visiting our church this summer and they happened to land on a Sunday that I spent the entire sermon on an obscure verse, Genesis 2.25, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed and preached the whole sermon that I thought was super unique on that. And I met the couple and said, we've been visiting churches this summer. This is our third church and this is the third time we've heard that sermon. (laughs) And I thought, oh my goodness. The Lord is trying to tell you all something and he's having a hard time doing it. Go to the next church and hear it again. Like, what is he trying to do? So the Lord does that. He'll repeat things again and again so that we will pay attention. 
And I think he's doing this. Inspired by the Holy Spirit through Moses, he is taking pains to show us the relationship because we just read that great gospel promise that Devin read for us again in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And Moses doesn't want us to move on too quickly from that. He wants that ringing in our ears because we are poised with Adam and Eve in anticipation. Well, then where is this seed? And who is this seed? And what will this seed look like? And when we will get the seed? And what will happen when the seed comes? And then in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 we read, Now Adam Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. We got a seed. We got a seed of the woman. We got a seed of Eve, the mother of all the living. We walked straight out of God's promise in chapter 3, verse 15, and straight into the arrival of a seed. And in fact, if you look closely how Eve responds, there is a way to translate this, like Martin Luther translates this. I have received a man, namely the Lord. In other words, she's wondering aloud, is this seed from the Lord or is this seed of the Lord or could this seed be Emmanuel, the Lord with us? We got a seed. And it's almost an afterthought in verse two. Oh yeah, she had Abel and that was the second son. And, and because we know the story so well, our hearts hurt for this wide-eyed couple who couldn't but think maybe Cain is the seed. Well, Cain grows up, Abel grows up, Cain becomes a farmer like his dad, and Abel becomes a shepherd, and both of them bring an offering to the Lord, and it says that the Lord has regard for Abel and his offering, but not regard for Cain and his offering. And sometimes I think when you first read this, it sounds unfair. I mean, both guys had their jobs and both of them brought an offering from their jobs. And so why does God like the one and not like the other? And we got to admit, first of all, we just don't know everything that's happening in the text. Like we didn't even know in the first place how these men knew to bring offerings to the Lord in the first place. Something is happening behind the text, behind the scenes that we don't even hear But even so, verse 4 does seem to emphasize the cost and care of Abel's offering, that he gives the expensive firstborn of his flock with the expensive valuable fat portions. He's giving something valuable to the Lord. And then Hebrews chapter 11 will fill in the heart posture of Abel when it says that Abel did this out of faith. His parents, Adam and Eve, heard God's promise and they had faith and named Eve the mother of all the living. And so now their son Abel has faith, whole soul trust in God as he brings his offering to the Lord. But Cain misses all of this and he's angry. But notice the Lord's care in verses six and seven. Because the family has been kicked out of Eden. They're no longer in the, the same intimacy and presence with the Lord that they had in the Garden of Eden. They're out of the Garden of Eden, but the Lord is not done with them. He actually appears to them and comes close to Cain, and he is present, speaking, and calling Cain an unbeliever to himself. 
God says to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Do you hear God pleading with Cain over the destructive power of sin? He's describing sin like a wild animal that's trying to ambush us. Have you felt that? Have you felt the presence of sin in that way? That it's not a fair fight and it doesn't come when you're ready, but temptation pounces upon us? Like I wish all temptation came my way at 6 a.m., when I'm in my easy chair with my Bible open and my black coffee and nobody's asking me for anything, I I wish the day's temptations would just line up then and I could answer each of them in turn with my Bible in the presence of the Lord and how sweet would that be to get it over with and then live the rest of the day? But sin takes one look at that and says, nah, no, we're not coming now. We're gonna wait an hour later when he realizes he's out of his favorite cereal and he forgot to run the dishwasher last night, and he's late for a meeting, and he's missing his keys, and boom, that's when we pounce, and we've got him right where we want him. Sin is like an animal. And God is inserting himself because we learn that sin has a life cycle. It doesn't appear full-grown It actually has to be born in desire and then gain strength. And God is seeking to interrupt that on Cain's behalf, stopping the sin from growing any further. I get all this from James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James 1, 14 and 15. That's that's creepy language, describing sins as babies that are being born in our lives and in the congregation. Sin is conceived in desire, entertaining a temptation. It's born in little acts or thoughts or patterns in our life and then it grows strong and mature and deadly. It has this life cycle of growing up in our midst, which means I think we could actually with eyes, spiritual discerning eyes, look out over our our own life and, and look out over this congregation and this room here and see sins of all shapes and sizes and stages of its growth. In this room, we have yet to be conceived sins. Those are the temptations that are in our mind, flitting through. We don't know where they come from. We're appalled and embarrassed that they even popped into our mind. And if we don't entertain them and we don't desire them and we don't spend more with them, then all of a sudden they're not conceived and they are shown the door by the power of the Holy Spirit. But not all of those sins leave that way. Some of them stay and dwell and get nursed and get thought about. 
And as we entertain those, we conceive desires that give birth to quote-unquote little sins. And they just become small practices and small habits and small ways that we treat other people and small ways that we think about things. Until all of a sudden, those little baby sins become adolescent sins, anger, greed, lusts, hate, and like teenagers, they're big and they're hard to handle. Until like Cain, teen sins become adult sins with killing power. They have a growth cycle. They grow monstrous in our lives and I bet cash money every single person in this room could testify that that's true. Nobody in this room disagrees with James chapter 1. Everyone has seen a sin at every stage in our life and we know it's true that if I leave this thing, it will grow. I don't walk out my front door and commit adultery, either in my mind or physically. That baby took years and years to grow and gain strength and take hold till I am poised and ready to do the thing that I'll be tempted to do. I don't walk out my front door and commit murder, either physically or true burning hate in my heart. That baby takes years and years to grow and develop in my heart and mind. God intervenes here with Cain like he intervenes here with us here this morning to shake us by the power of the Holy Spirit and say, church, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It is crouching at the door. Its desire is to pounce on you and destroy you and make it its slave. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God alone, Resist it, flee from it, run to your refuge and say no to the sin. Well, Cain won't hear. He can't even hear it from the mouth of the Lord. That's how far gone his heart and mind is. The Lord audibly speaking to him will not arrest him in his tracks. And his sin grows and it festers. It's a hate that bubbles up throughout the day and catches him at odd moments with its poisonous heat. It wishes awful things on Abel and then it begins to fantasize about doing awful things to Abel. And we don't have a ton of details in the text. We can't tell from verse 8 whether Cain went to bed that night with premeditated murder on his mind, plotting or scheming or thinking about what he's going to do and how he's going to get him, or Cain attended his growth group that night and sat in a circle and answered every single question right and everybody was impressed with him and he hid a dead heart behind an active mind and all the same, he wakes up the next day and I'm reading about this on page three of my Bible. Page two, God looks at his creation and says, this is all very good and I am well pleased. And one page later, later we read about the world's first 
homicide. Behold the destructive power of sin. Now there's a lot here, but but I want to rush ahead to that sober point the text is making because we said that Adam and Eve and any reader of the Bible has the promise of the gospel from chapter three ringing in our ears, salvation that's gonna come through the woman and surely the first couple and surely the first reader of the Bible is looking at Cain and thinking, could this be that seed of the woman? And the story tells us, no, he looks more like the seed of the serpent. In chapter 3, only the serpent is cursed. Remember that? Adam and Eve are not cursed. There's hope for them. He curses the serpent and he curses the ground, but he doesn't curse Adam and Eve. He gives them this gospel promise. But here in verse 11, God says to Cain, you are cursed, just like the serpent. Cain looks more like the cursed seed of the serpent than the blessed seed of the woman. Even when God confronts Cain over his sin, he's exposed, he's caught red-handed in murder, he is absolutely unrepentant. The only thing he does is this pathetic and ironic plea that God would protect him, a murderer, from being murdered. The only thing he can think about is himself. And so John will put it bluntly, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. 1 John 3.12. Which means we end the sermon where we began, a humanity in two groups. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And from the very beginning, we begin to branch into these two family trees. On the one hand, you have the seed of the serpent, all those who reject God and fight against his purposes. Jesus didn't pull any crowd, any punches when he spoke to a crowd who rejected them and told them in John 8, you are of your father, the devil. John picks up that thought and says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. He's not saying anybody who falls into sin, anybody who does sin and runs to Jesus for grace and repentance. He's saying anybody who is established in their life, I will do this thing, I will say no to the Lord, I will make a habit and a practice of sinning, that person, John says, is of the devil. These words give us pause and they give us different language to describe ourselves. If I am outside of God, that means I'm aligned with the serpent. Now, I may not feel that way and I may not think that way and I may disagree 100% with any association with that monster, the devil. I don't want to even hear that language in my presence. But God is saying, if I am not in Christ, washed with Christ, clothed in Christ, growing up in Christ, the only other alternative is that I will begin to look more and more in my thoughts and my words and my deeds like my spiritual father, the serpent. That's a sea of humanity in that place. And actually, 
That was the story of every single person in this room. I love sitting with the men yesterday at our lake day and we had a challenge to give a a 10 word testimony. You had to share your testimony in 10 words and, and just hearing dear brothers and dear seekers and searchers be able to say, this was my life and there was real wreckage there. It was hard to hear some of those first early words in a 10-word testimony like addiction and suicide and pornography and hate and anger. But oh, the grace of God in the seed of the woman for all those who are found in Christ. That's you if you are in Christ. You are in the lineage of faith. Sin really is crouching at the door. Sin really is trying to master every single person in this room. Sin really is able to make shipwreck of our lives. Sin eats best intentions for breakfast. Sin will seek to have its way. But for the believer, sin will never ever, ever be the final word. It can't and it won't. Verse 10 says that Abel's blood spilled to the ground and the blood of dead Abel cried out to God for justice. And the writer to the Hebrews sees that powerful thought and picks it up in Hebrews chapter 12 and says, yeah, but Jesus's blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He speaks over this room grace and forgiveness and real spiritual power to change. Run to Jesus. Run to the seed of the woman. Run to the one who was born at such a time as the fullness of time to deliver us from the evil one, to draw us to himself, to fully embrace us in Christ so that God will say of us what he says of his son, Jesus, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray you would give us honest words to describe ourselves. We wouldn't use the world's words. We wouldn't use our culture's words. We wouldn't guess where we stand. But Father, I pray that you would show us with spiritual eyes if we are aligned with the seed of the serpent or we are aligned with the seed of the woman. And I pray that your promise would ring as true today as it did for Adam and Eve and Abel that we might run to you in faith and receive lavish grace upon us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.